Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor in Safety and Health. With me, as always, are my fellow associate editors, Kevin Drewley and Alan Ferguson. This is our July 2022 episode, number 29, if you're keeping score at home. And wherever and however you're listening today, we thank you for spending some time with us. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear about it for our My Story column in the magazine. We invite you and your colleagues to submit your personal stories about how you got into safety by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. You can view past My Story entries and catch up on other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Alan will take us on a deep dive into his unique SIF prevention roundtable discussion that appears in our July print edition. We also will be joined by Chandra Juello of Industrial Health and Safety Consultants to discuss the ins and outs of hazard communication and the challenges that employers face. And the three of us will also share an important item that we learned this month, either on the job or away from work, in our What We Learned segment. Is everybody ready? Let's get rolling. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a look at a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, and we call that our deep dive segment. In the July issue of the magazine, Alan put together an interesting story on SIF prevention that featured a round table of safety experts. The story highlights progress, or a lack thereof, toward prevention of serious injuries and fatalities, along with the latest innovations and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted workplace efforts. So, Alan, could you please dip your toe in the water for our deep dive? Yes, I will. Thank you so much, Barry. Um, Just to let listeners know, this is a different kind of deep dive and a little shorter, which may be met with cheers or not, and I I do hope it's positive. Much of the genesis of this feature story came from our esteemed editor, Melissa Ruminski. Uh, We want to address serious injury and fatality or SIF prevention, but also wanted a different way of presenting the topic. She suggested the roundtable, and I went about identifying and contacting people who could help us. Uh, so we got responses from four organizations. That's the Krauss Bell Group, DECRA, Safe Start, and the Campbell Institute here at the National Safety Council. I will say that even when I got all the pieces and put them together, I, I really wasn't sure how it would turn out. And if you know anything about me, you know that I can be my own worst critic. But I thought this turned out pretty well at, at the end of the day. So the answers were engaging and even some people gave, I'd say, opposite opinions or perspectives from each other. Alan, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, give us some insight into why you asked the particular questions that you did during the roundtable discussion? Yeah, will do. Um, so I was given free reign over these questions. I, I wanted to ask, where are we at when it comes to SIF prevention and what strides have been made? And naturally, I wanted to ask about the effect, if any, that the pandemic had on SIF prevention. A- and I wanted to have our panelists look ahead to what's potentially coming in the near future. There are two other particular questions in the roundtable. Can you Tell us a little bit about those and why you included those. The ones you're referencing, I asked for organizations interested in SIF prevention or improvements, where should they begin their efforts? I also asked for small organizations that may not have as many resources, 
what can they do for SIF prevention? I think this is the heart of what we try to do here at Safety and Health. In the magazine, the podcast, and other arenas, um, we wanted to we want to help, whether it's advice or potential resources or things like that. We also try to speak to different sizes of organizations, those at different points of a safety journey, those with different resources, because we understand that resources are often limited, especially for safety. So we try to give some sort of takeaway or way to put the things that we write about into practical use whenever we can. Well, thank you once again, Alan, for your work on this story. Please feel free to check out Alan's SIF Roundtable discussion article or other topics and news from around the safety world in the July issue of Safety and Health Magazine. Or you can visit us online at www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Email your submission to safehealth at nsc.org to share the road that you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. Hazard communication is a subject that causes issues for many employers, as evidenced by its perennial appearances on OSHA's annual top 10 list of violations. With us to talk about HASCOM is Chandra Duello, Vice President and Senior Consultant Industrial Health and Safety Consultants, and one of the sources for my story on HASCOM that appeared in the June 21 issue of Safety and Health. Chandra, thank you so much for joining us on the safe side. I'm very happy to be here. As we mentioned, the HASCOM standard is a perennial occupant on OSHA's list of top 10 violations. Where do employers often have trouble when it comes to HASCOM? Oh, well, it's kind of funny the things that I see as a hazard communication expert that are issues with people's HASCOM programs and what OSHA sees. Uh, because OSHA, when they are inspecting, they are looking at the HASCOM program of the company they are inspecting. Uh, so what they're really looking at are things like whether or not you have your written HASCOM program, whether you're following your written HASCOM program, uh, whether you have unlabeled containers, where you're maintaining your safety data sheets, ensuring that's available to your workers, and making sure that your workers are trained. Where I tend to see the most problems is in the actual content of the safety data sheets and the labels. But because of OSHA and their way that their inspections work, uh, if you are being inspected, you will get in trouble with the stuff that's going on at your facility and the fact that your supplier is providing you with an inaccurate or inadequate safety data sheet or label is not something that's under OSHA's purview in that um, inspection. So where the citations really come from, uh, from what I've heard from OSHA presentations, have really been uh, the written HASCOM program and the following of the written HASCOM program and things like unlabeled containers. And why are those particular areas so difficult or troublesome for employers? You know, that's a really good question. Honestly, there's a part of me that's not entirely sure. because. Uh, the having a written HASCOM program and reviewing and following the written HASCOM program seems really basic. But I remember when we were doing training on the HASCOM 2012 uh, update, when it was proposed and when it was first adopted, frequently when we would doing, be doing these training sessions, one of the things that people would ask us about is, we have to have a written HASCOM program 
And I'm sitting there thinking, you've had to have a written HASCOM program since the first HASCOM standard in 1983. <laughs> if you're, this is a surprise to you, then you have bigger issues <laughs> going on. So um, I think a lot of it is HASCOM, the HASCOM standard of the past was often neglected uh, because it was not very strict. It wasn't very stringent and it wasn't very well enforced. Um, so I think that a lot of companies, HASCOM kind of fills this weird void between um, safety and industrial hygiene. So I know a lot of CSPs and most CSPs have no training on HASCOM. And I know a lot of industrial hygienists and industrial hygienists have very little training on HASCOM. So HASCOM has ended up being this, um, this sort of no one wants to to claim it and so it doesn't really have um have that focus and because it's a less obvious um source of hazards uh you know if ppe is wrong you'll see that immediately if you have slip strips and balls that's an immediate injury but the injuries caused by a poor hascom program are not as noticeable and they're not as immediate. So I think that in the hustle and bustle of the workplace, HASCOM becomes an issue of, well, all right, we got new safety data sheets, just stick them in a binder and let's ignore them. And so it sort of falls by the wayside. And so the lack of a written HASCOM program or a failure to follow the written HASCOM program and a proliferation of unlabeled containers is really an indication of a larger problem that a lot of workplaces have where hazard communication is devalued and ignored for the you know for the sake of the more immediate and more noticeable safety issues and since no one has any real claim to it uh, no one really puts in the time to uh, develop the expertise in it very few companies have a hascom expert usually either they outsource their safety data sheet and label authoring, or if they have a group in house that writes their safety data sheets and labels, they're not also at the workplace, at the places where the products are being manufactured to actually inspect and make sure that other side of it is being done. So I just think that hazard communication has sort of ended up siloed and it causes a lot of problems for workers and uh, workplaces rather in terms of actual compliance and having a robust hazard communication program. OSHA has been working on a HASCOM update for a little while now from GHS's third edition to its seventh. If and when those updates get finalized, what are some of the changes employers or employees can expect from the third to the seventh editions? Oh, well, third to seventh editions, Let's see, there are some smaller issues and there are some larger issues and then there are some that are possibly not going to end up in the final um, in the final standard because they've had a lot of pushback. Actually, their, uh, some of their proposed changes have ended up with such significant propose, uh, pushback from industry that I wouldn't be surprised if they are not in the final um, the final uh, standard. So the big things, uh, if you're an aerosol manufacturer, you are probably going to be the most affected that of any um, companies out there because uh, previously with revision three, and it was actually updated in revision four, but everything takes time to adopt in the US. And by that point, we were already part of the way through the process of updating our HASCOM standard, and they weren't going to go and update this at that point. 
Um, but under Rev3, aerosols had to be classified as both an aerosol and a gas under pressure, and they had to have the gas under pressure pictogram. And so with the update to Rev7, that is finally going to be streamlined with the rest of the world. Aerosols are their own hazard classification now, so there's flammable, uh, non-flammable, and uh, uh, aerosols are going to be covered under the GHS as aerosols. And so um, they will no longer fall under the compressed gases. Uh, there's also the introduction of the chemicals under pressure, which is a new hazard classification. Um, so that's part of the update. Uh, pyrophoric gases, there's a slight change because pyrophoric gases actually has been adopted on the uh, global scale. So it's now part of the international GHS. So there's a slight change to how that's set up, um, but it's the criteria are the same. So it's just no longer going to be an OSHA specific hazard. It's going to be a, um, it'll just be a regular GHS hazard classification. Some of the changes that are getting the most pushback, uh, one is that OSHA was going to require a, that companies put a date released for shipment on the label so that if the product ended up sitting in a warehouse somewhere and then ended up going to the customer later on and that uh, label has been updated, then the, then the supplier was supposed to send new labels to the customer who was supposed to relabel. And I understand why they were proposing that. And I understand how it made sense from a, an OSHA perspective, but from an industry perspective, it is both going to be very hard to implement, very complicated, and can cause serious issues with the fact that um, you're now depending on your downstream users to actually relabel the correct containers uh, and not use those labels on anything else and not just throw them away. And so it causes um, some potential issues there. Um, so I'll be interested to see what OSHA ends up doing with that. One of the other more obvious changes that makes sense is that um, OSHA has removed the requirement if you are, have a bulk container that is being shipped, say if you have a tank car, which was considered a container, so it had to be labeled under the GHS, but you know, normally see tank cars going down the highway with GHS labeling on them. Uh, so OSHA is officially putting in place a, um, an exemption for bulk containers. So that's in there. Um, so some fairly large changes, I think a lot of companies will find that their products, their safety data sheets and their labels are not going to have uh, major changes, unless of course you're an aerosol manufacturer. Um, but I, I think that really OSHA has um, listened to industry and, and I think that it's I think it'll be interesting to see how OSHA ends up um, actually adopting the revisions and to see how that changes. Uh, but I do think that most companies sh should not expect um, to have a huge overhaul of the standard. Along with not having a written program, training is another HASCOM issue for employers. What are some ways to improve that training? So, okay, so there are a few ways that you can improve your, your HASCOM training. Uh, one is to really stop and think about what you use for, what system you use for internal in-house labeling, uh, because a lot of companies use an alternate labeling method for their in-house containers. And so you have to train to that as well as training to the basic HASCOM standard and all of the GHS elements. Um, so 
I think uh, a lot of companies really did not want to change from their old system, but the, this new HASCOM standard with the pictogram signal words, hazard phrases, precautionary phrases, that is the way forward. It will be the way um, for the foreseeable uh, future. And so I would consider whether or not having a secondary system in place for labeling of in-house containers makes sense. Um, and the other thing that I would really recommend, and I always recommend to people I train and to my clients, is to test your training. Um, you know, if, if you're the person who's doing the HASCOM training, walk around your floor, talk to the people, ask them to explain to you what the pictogram means, what are the hazards of the chemicals that they're working with. Those types of spot testing can really help identify where the gaps are in the training. Uh, if you notice that um, most of your workers don't seem to understand the pictograms, then you could put up maybe an informational poster. Um, if you have a multilingual workplace, and I know that's super common, um, all of the pictogram descriptions, all of the hazard phrases, all of the precautionary phrases that are in the GHS have been translated into a significant number of languages. So it might be useful to provide that information um, to your workers in their in their native language. And there is a requirement by OSHA that um, people have to understand the training that they're given. Um, but if you don't have the capacity, you don't speak the language yourself, you don't have access to someone who does speak the language, though I would say if you have a person on the floor who speaks that language, but also speaks uh, English or whatever your primary language is as the person doing the training, if they understand that well enough, that they can help you develop multilingual training, that's a good idea. Um, but by having that information available to people in their language that's around the workplace, that can really help um, reinforce that. Because the GHS is designed to be a reinforcing system um, where the whole idea of having this harmonized system for labeling was that uh, you train people, this is what this pictogram means. These are what these hazard phrases indicate. And so people, when they see them over and over and over again, they could say, all right, well, okay, so this product has the flame pictogram and this product also has a flame pictogram. I know that these are both flammable. Um, but it's important to remember that HASCOM is kind of its own language. It is jargon. There's there's phrases and stuff that we use all the time that don't necessarily make sense to regular workers. And so thinking about it from that perspective, understanding that it is like teaching another language and realizing that you have to, um, to communicate with people in a way that they understand and then have confirmation from them that they understand can really improve your training. And I think it's also important to know that when OSHA inspectors come, one of the ways that they're going to test whether or not your training is effective is by going on the floor and asking workers what's the hazard of the chemical you're working with. So it really is important if you do that same type of approach, you will be sure that uh, if an OSHA inspector asks that, that 
your workers are trained well enough that they will be able to know the answers. Um, but I think it's also really important because we're talking about worker safety and health, by having a training that is also a communication where workers feel comfortable that if that they understand the system well enough that if they see something that the label doesn't make sense or the hazard phrases don't make sense from what they've been trained to, that they can bring it to someone's attention. And then, then perhaps you might go to your supplier and ask for clarification. Because I think that's one of the things that frustrates me most with Hascom in general is that there isn't much of a communication from upstream to downstream and back in terms of improving the quality of safety data sheets and labels. So I think because if you're developing, if you're reviewing the safety data sheets and labels and you can bring that to your suppliers when it's, um, when it's not enough, um, but also for workers to be able, I mean, you're, they're your eyes and ears. If they're the ones who will be able to say, hey, we got this, pa this pallet in from our supplier and we don't, it doesn't seem to have any labels on it. Or, you know, these labels, they don't have any information. And so by getting that feedback from the workers, one, they're demonstrating and reinforcing the training they've had on Hascom, but two, they're also participating in the safety culture of the workplace. And they're really gonna help um, if you take that into consideration and they see that you're taking that seriously, they will help improve your Hascom system um, in your workplace, but also can help you keep the workplace safer. What are some resources out there for employers who do want to improve their HASCOM programs? Um, I would say probably the best resource out there, um, OSHA does actually have some really good resources. They have some really useful training information. They have some um, quick cards and stuff uh, translated into Spanish as well. Um, I highly recommend the Society for Has chemical hazard communication, SCHC, I uh, volunteer with that organization and uh, they are the U.S. Uh, hazard communication professional society uh, and um, has training, has a lot of resources, uh, a lot of informational uh, pamphlets and stuff. Um, they have a uh, they have a way if you if you want to find someone to talk about Hascom, they have a speakers bureau and you can find resources from that. Uh, they also have, of course, a consultants listing. So you know, there's that. AIHA has some resources. Uh, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Um, I'm also involved with them, and they have. They actually are the ones um, we developed the SDS and label author registry, which is a tests that you take to demonstrate your knowledge about writing safety data sheets and labels. And so if you are trying to find a consultant, trying to find a professional to give you that expertise, I do recommend looking for someone who has that SDSRP um, designation uh, because that indicates that they have demonstrated knowledge on um, hazard communication, safety data sheets and labels to a depth that isn't covered by any other uh, testing method internationally from as far as I know. So um, those would really be my best recommendations. Uh, if you're doing international, there's the British organization, CHCS. Uh, they're the SCHC sister organization. So they have some excellent resources. They have a, um, you can sign up for their email chain. And if you have questions 
uh, about any type of hascom related thing you can send an email out to their um to their listserv and then people who are experts will email you back um so that's a really good way to get some outside perspective there's some pretty good resources out there that have conferences and trainings yeah i think that that's what i would really recommend well thank you so much chandra for uh sharing your insights with us on this topic it was great to have you this month on the safe side really happy to be here and uh thank you so much for asking me to join you In May, we here at On the Safe Side started a new segment called What Did We Learn This Month? It was reinventing the end of this program, but not the wheel. The title remains pretty self-explanatory. We go around the horn and discuss things we learned on the job or away from it. What I learned this month actually is a case of what I relearned this month, and that's the nourishment brought forth by both the Good Omelet Station and networking with peers. In mid-June, our employer hosted an in-person breakfast and awards ceremony for the Safety Council that marked the first time the members of the organization all had been together since the onset of the pandemic. While your humble podcast co-hosts have seen one another several times in the past two years, including for our live on the safe side recordings at the 2021 NSC Safety Congress and Expo in Orlando, there are dozens of familiar faces we'd only communicated with by phone, Zoom, or blue jeans, a cozy Zoom precursor before this banquet. Though I didn't have the privilege of going on the dais to accept an award, that honor belongs to Barry, bravo Barry. I still feel compelled to recognize, if not thank, some of the folks with whom I conversed. I'll keep it short because the orchestra's starting to play, but here's to reconnecting with Amy, our online content editor, and Ryan, a videographer and sound editor, who both do terrific behind the scenes work on the podcast. It also was great catching up with Brett, a graphic designer in NSC's creative services team. Before flexible work from home became the norm, Brett sat in a cubicle a short walk away from mine and was known for an eclectic yet uncannily safe for work playlist. We talked a lot about music and the art of getting that volume just right so you not only stay productive yourself, but also keep your coworkers from chirping to turn it down. As for the omelet, mine had a traditional meats Mediterranean flair, sausage, spinach, and feta. Good stuff. Alan, you fellow omelet connoisseur, how about you? What have you learned lately? Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, the yeah, the omelet station was nice. Uh, it was a nice touch. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go circle back kind of to our uh, discussion with our guest. Um, I learned that uh, the Hascom update uh, might be coming fairly soon, at least to, uh, it could be by the end of the year, but I, I doubt it. it, but it could be early um, in 2023. So, I mean, that's promising for people who are looking for a little more stability as OSHA um, links from the third revision of the GHS to the seventh revision. I mean, so I guess there's probably a lot of people that are waiting, have been waiting for that for a little while. So it, that's a, a good development uh, on the latest regulatory agenda. The HASCOM update moved from proposed rule stage to final rule stage. So that's a, that's a good sign that it might be uh, coming sometime in the near future. So what about you, Barry? Well, Alan, I learned that uh, a little bit of news from safetyandhealthmagazine.com. It, it was a, a Canadian study that I kind of dove into over the past month uh, about young workers. Uh, and their exposure to carcinogens. So basically what the um, researchers looked at 10 years of data and they found that young workers, especially in construction, farming and other occupations in particular, um, faced an increased risk of being exposed to multiple carcinogens. Um, and these are mainly workers who are 25 and under. Uh, and this study came from uh, Ontario's Workers Health and Safety Center 
uh, very interesting study. So I'll link it to uh, our show notes here for folks to take a look at it. But I think it would, uh, it, it's definitely an interesting read. And um, Kevin, back to you uh, with the most spectacular omelet that I've ever seen. That's far too kind. It, it was it was a workman uh, omelet, not not the best. You, you know, you, you kind of have to tread lightly because you don't want to load it up too much because they only put so much of that, that egg batter. But at any rate, no, it was great to, again, to, to see you guys. I hope I wasn't selling you short, but it just was a, a cool thing to, to be there with a lot of our our colleagues and coworkers. With that, though, just as always, we'd love to hear more from you, the listener. So if you want to share something you've learned or have any other thoughts, please do send them to us at safehealth at nsc.org or use the hashtag SafeSide on social media. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you spending some of it with us. If you'd like to send feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you sharing a rating and a review of this podcast. To find stories such as Alan's Roundtable on SIF prevention and all the latest news from around the occupational safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by friend of the podcast, Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile for a while. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. And remember, please stay on the safe side.